how neat is it that we have a community of young adults that love Jesus that can hang out together? Yeah, some of you think that's cool. Some of you are like, I'm not really so sure. Someone's brand new here and they're like, oh goodness. I don't know about these people. Uh, I don't either. They're, they're crazy, so, so leave. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, my name is Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I actually get to be the, uh, the campus pastor of our, of our campus for Disney cast members. Uh, and, and we have a few representing tonight, which I'm, I'm so excited about. Love that. Uh, but I won't point you out, Babs and Stacy and Chandler and Brooke but, 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 and, and Miranda. But uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, Danny walking down the aisle right now. This is Danny. Danny Connor, everyone. Uh, church planning resident. Uh, you know, I had a unique uh, childhood. I think we all have unique childhood, uh, but mine was unique in this particular way. Uh, most people, when they live in a location, a city, uh, they, they stay there year round for as long as they live in that place, right? I mean, that's just, that's just normal. If I live here, I'm going to stay here year round. That was not my childhood. That was not the way that I grew up. I lived in Branson, Missouri. Anyone know where Branson, Missouri is? Yeah, a few people do. Okay, it is the home of, it is the country music show capital of the world. Yeah, I think if you put enough adjectives in front of a city, it is the capital of the world of that particular thing. Uh, so it's the country music show capital of the world. Uh, it's a town, when I grew up, of 2,500 people and sees, see, saw more than 8 million tourists a year. Okay, that, uh, this is nothing for you guys. Okay, <laughs> do I need to like do a dance or something? Okay, but anyway, Branson, Missouri. Now, I lived there during the year. Nine months out of the year, I would live in Branson, Missouri, and then... For three months out of the year in the summer, because that equals 12, I would live in Lampy, Missouri. And Lampy, Missouri, goodness. That is hillbilly, uh, you know, backwoods, redneck, inbred. I mean, that is, that is, the, I mean, that is the place where, where like, I, I, was, I was brothers with and cousins with uh, the same people. Like, that, that was where uh, we would hang out in the summer. It was a great place. It was a town of, I think, 68 people. But we didn't really live in the town. My parents ran Christian sports camps. And so we were out there uh, in, in, the, in the camp all summer long. And what would happen is every two to four weeks, you would have a whole bunch brand new group of friends that would come in, which was great as a kid. You, I mean, you, you could hang out with a person for a couple weeks, maybe, maybe four weeks, get to know them, get to know the good parts, the exciting parts, the fun parts, and then they would leave and you wouldn't have to deal with all the difficult stuff that comes with knowing a person for a while. So that became a pattern in my life is I would become friends with someone for a little bit of time and then it, before it got difficult or as soon as it did begin to get difficult, I'd peace out. Like that, was, that was the way that my life was. I don't know about you, but I like things that are comfortable. I like things that are easy. I don't like things that are difficult. And for me, I'm a classic conflict avoider. Anybody here like conflict? Here? Every group of friends has someone that likes conflict. And if your group of friends doesn't have one, it's you. Uh, and so, so just, just be aware of that. I, I don't like conflict. It, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. And so for me, the pattern of my life was I would get to know someone till it got hard, till I had to, ha had to have a conflict. And then I would do a cost-benefit analysis of this friendship. Uh, I, I didn't think in those terms because I don't have a business mind. But basically, that's what I was doing. I would say, okay, is it worth it? This is going to be hard. This is going to be uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me. I'm not going to like it. So is it worth it for me to have this conflict, for me to, uh, you know, pr uh, 
persevere through this difficulty and have this friendship or not. And most of the time I say it wasn't worth it. So I'm just, I was out. And this happened uh, in my life with, with girlfriends, with friendships, with, with all kind of stuff, because that was kind of the way that I had learned to socialize because of the unique situation that I was in paired with my anti-conflict nomianism that I had in my life. I, that's not a word, I just made it up. Uh, so here's the thing though. I think I was ahead of the time. Because in that day and age, that was rare. But I think today, this is the way that our society is. This is the way that we do friendships. This is the way that we do dating. This is the way that marriages have become. As soon as it gets, it gets difficult, I'm out. As soon as it's not fun for me, as soon as I've got to get, get into the, the nitty gritty of your crazy personality, I, I don't want to deal with that anymore, so I'm out. Uh, we have a lot of uh, commitment phobes. Any commitment phobes in here? Okay, how, how many liars? Okay, great, sweet. So, so we, we, you know, we have a few commitment phobes. This was me, so I can relate. I can relate. Uh, commitment is scary because that means I'm gonna stay even when I don't like it, even when it's not fun, even when it's hard. And I tell you what, relationships are hard. They're difficult. People are crazy, right? Sometimes people are the worst sometimes. Can, can I get an amen on that? Sometimes people are the worst. Right? You, you, you serve people, you sacrifice for people, you love them, you do great things for them, and, and then they, they, you do one little thing, one tiny thing, and, and, and they're all mad at you, all frustrated with you. I, 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 I used to think, especially in marriage, that this is the way that it worked, that when I did good things, I would build credit, right? I would be in the black, and then if I did something bad, I would have credit. So it'd be like, I'm, I'm still in the black. I'm still good. I just went down a little bit. It's okay. But what happens with relationships, and I've learned this in marriage, is that you never earn any credit. There is no credit to be earned. There's just zero. When you do good stuff, you remain at zero. And when you do bad stuff, you go in the red. That's the way that it is. So you have to apologize. I was thinking, no, I'm earning credit. I don't need to apologize. I'm good. I did all these other things for you. And that's kind of the way it is with relationships. And, and it gets frustrating. And so we... Uh, as, as Derek from Cademan's Call said in a song, is, you know, we're a long line of leavers. Like, I'm from a long line of leavers. Uh, my, in my past, I, what I've seen is I leave a lot. When, when things go bad, I leave. And that's just kind of the way that, that it is. But, but the scary thing, here's the scary thing of the way that our world has become, our culture has become. 20 years from now, when I and you haven't done the hard work of developing meaningful, deep, intimate, lasting friendships, what happens when I find myself 20 years down the road and I don't have any friendships because I've left every time it's gotten hard, every time it's gotten difficult. I found a new group of friends, which is fun and exciting at the time, or perhaps even in our society, I, I find my worth and my value in, in likes and in comments and friends that I have on Facebook. Right? I, I can get my fulfillment there so I don't have to do the, the difficult work in the real world. I don't have to have friendships that are, that are longer than 130, 40 characters, right? And it's kind of the way that it's gotten in our society. And, and what I love is that Paul deals with this. In fact, in fact Paul dealt with this like, like we have never dealt with it, likely, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the church of Corinth. Uh, Paul was an early church planting missionary. He planted a church in Corinth, which was a, a crazy city. And, and what happened is after he was there for 18 months, pouring his heart and his soul, everything into them, serving them at a great cost to himself and to other churches, he leaves. Uh, and not because he doesn't like them. He leaves because he's planting other churches. In fact, he stayed there for a year and a half, which was crazy for him because he wanted to plant other churches. Most churches he didn't stay that long with. 
He leaves and then finds out things are going crazy. So he writes 1 Corinthians, which was a letter to correct a number of things that were going on in the church. He writes 1 Corinthians, sends that with Timothy. Later he sends Titus. And then things go worse. And Paul has to make a visit. He's got to leave what's going on in Ephesus, all the great things that are going on with these good relationships. He's got to take care of this, this church, Corinth. These, these people that are the worst. And we, we have to admit, I mean, when you know Corinth, they, they were the worst. They were absolutely the worst, okay? So he has to make a month-long journey, probably, likely, to go to Corinth, out of the way from these good relationships he's in, where this gospel is spreading, lives are changing, people are coming into the family of God, to go deal with the crazy stuff that this immature church is still dealing with. Then he has to write them, after he comes back, he has to write a severe letter. He writes this letter that's harsh, that's really harsh. Uh, It's brutally honest. And then... Paul's here in Ephesus, okay? He's in Ephesus. Corinth is over here across the the sea. And then he goes up to Troas. He goes into Macedonia, and then he's going to head down to Corinth. But while he's here in Macedonia, he he, he has has an interaction with Titus, who had brought that severe letter to Corinth. And then he writes 2 Corinthians while he's up here to send it to them to prepare them for his visit. Now, while uh, the reason he's writing this letter, a big portion of it is because there are a number of people in Corinth that have come there and have been talking bad about Paul, dragging his name through the mud, killing his reputation. And the Corinthian believers who should be his friends and family are buying it. They believe in it. They're following after it. And so he has to address a number of concerns. And what it seems like is, is Paul's got this gigantic ball of yarn that's all knotted and ratty, and he's having to unravel it. And it's so tedious. It's so difficult. And, and, and to me, I don't know. I think my evaluation at that point in time, after I had been there for 18 months, I had written one letter, I had had a painful visit, had to have a severe letter, sent Titus to you, sent Timothy to you, sent Titus to you again, I might say, okay, let me wash my hands of this. It's not worth it. Not worth it. Because I'm planting churches all over the world. I'm seeing the gospel go out all over the world. And I'm not having to deal with these churches like I'm having to deal with you. You look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's so, it's so loving. You, his letter to the Galatians or, or Thessalonians. Like it, these letters aren't the same as, as the letter to Corinthians because he's not having to deal with the same things that he's having to deal with there with this immature church that just still doesn't get it. In fact, 40 years later, Clement writes to the church of Corinth and he's writing about the same stuff. They just don't get it. This is, I mean, this is one of those people that you think, okay, if there is ever a, a time to say, I'm out, this is it. It's just not worth it. But Paul continues in relationship with him. Why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, page 666. Uh, if you have a smart device, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. Paul begins the letter with the grace and peace of God, which is amazing that he starts there after the relationship he's had with these people. And then he talks more about the God of comfort, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Just looking at the beautiful character of our God that is so full of grace and mercy for us, that loves us so deeply and dearly. And now he gets into the nitty gritty of what's going on in his relationship with them, beginning to kind of untie a lot of these different knots that they have going on. Verse 12, it says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, 
but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now, first of all, boast. That word sounds uh, like Paul's bragging about some stuff. He's not doing that. Paul is beginning to make his case. He's beginning to let them know behind the veil of his intentions what was really going on. And he's saying, hey, I can have confidence in the way that I interacted with you because, here's what Paul did, is everything that Paul did was on the foundation of Jesus Christ looking through the lens of the gospel, being led by the Spirit of God. Everything Paul did was that way. I think what happens so often in our lives, we're so afraid of conflict, we're so afraid of the way that people are gonna react, we're uh, afraid of what they're gonna do or what they're gonna think or what they're gonna say to other people. And you gotta realize, you cannot control people's reactions. You cannot control people's emotions. You cannot control other people, you can't. There's only one person who can change people, that is the Spirit of God. You can't change people. So, when you base everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you say on the foundation of Christ, looking through the lens of the gospel, being led by the Spirit, then you can have confidence that what you're doing is the right thing. Now, it may hurt their feelings. And, and if it does, you can say, hey, so sorry that, that I hurt your feelings, but just so you know, like, I didn't do this to hurt your feelings. I did it because this is what was right. And this is what Paul is saying. Everything that I do, I make sure that it's being led by the Spirit on the foundation of the gospel. I know I can have confidence in this because that's how I live my life. He goes on, verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than uh, anything what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partly understand us. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. One of the accusations against Paul was that the letters that he wrote were confusing. And not only that they were confusing, but they had these double meanings. He would say one thing, but he meant another thing. And that he would act one way in person, but in his letters they were really harsh and deceptive and deceitful. And so now Paul's like, okay, let me talk about the letters that I wrote. First of all, can, can we get a little bit of amen on, on the fact that sometimes the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand? Okay, amen. Peter agreed. Second Peter, he said that, 316. He said some of the things that Paul says are difficult to understand as, along with the rest of Scripture, which is cool that Peter's saying what Paul is writing is Scripture. But sometimes it's difficult to understand because Paul was writing steak and the Corinthian believers, they needed milk right? They, they, were, they were babies. They weren't ready to chew the, the amazing, you know, Kobe steak that Paul was, was giving them, and it was hard to chew, right? But what Paul is saying, it was, it's plain though. What I wrote is what I meant. I, I, didn't, I didn't write one thing, but really secretly mean another. I wasn't writing to you this and then really telling other people other things. That's not what I was doing. Everything that I wrote is exactly what I meant, there was no double meanings. There was nothing behind it. There, were, there was no impure motives. Now, it, it may have been difficult for you to understand. Read the letter again and again and again and again and again. That's okay. But what I wrote is definitely what I meant, being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 15. Actually, let's, let's stick with 14. Wow. He says, he says, this is what I want you to understand. He said, you partially understood me when I was, when I was there in person. You partially understood it, but, but I want you to fully understand. Here's what I want you to fully understand. This, guess, this is key right here. Listen to this. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. 
Paul is saying right here, I'm not going anywhere. It's crazy between us, I know. It's hard between us, I know. I feel like I have to walk on eggshells around you, I know. I have to be careful with every word that I say. I have to explain everything over and over again. And and, and your feelings have been hurt by things that I have said. And you're mad at me and you're frustrated with me. But what I'm telling you now is I am in this for the long haul. I'm not going anywhere. We will when we see fully, when we don't know just in part, when the, the, when the intentions of the heart are fully revealed, you're going to boast of us just like we boast of you. Because you're going to see our intentions. You're going to see the way that God has led us. And we are going to see the fruit of what God has done through you. We are going to stick with you even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. It will happen. Verse 15, but I was sure of this. But because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. This is not Paul saying, hey, when you get me, you're getting an experience of grace, right? He's not saying, I wanted you to visit again so you'd have another experience of me. Paul, that's not what he's saying. Uh, There's a couple uh, ways that this could be interpreted. It may be that, that that Paul is talking about another opportunity for you to give to the saints at, uh, in Jerusalem as he's making the collection uh, for them. Because when we give, we are blessed. Uh, it could just mean that, that when Paul writes in Rome, he's like, I want to come, you know, impart some spiritual gift to you that we're going to be encouraged by each other's faith. Uh, but, but the idea is that Paul is saying he had, he had a plan. And here's what they're mad about. Let me kind of give you context. Actually, let's read before we give you context. It says a lot of it. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Mass. Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Here's what's going on. Paul was in Ephesus, right? Corinth is over here across the sea. Macedonia is up here. Paul said, my original plan, and they knew of this, you know, through one of the visits or maybe the letter that we don't have. He said, what I want to do is I want to come over to Corinth from Ephesus. Then I want to go up to Macedonia. And then I want to come back to Corinth from Macedonia and then head to Jerusalem. But instead, what happened is Paul sent sent the, the letter and then he went up to Troas, into Macedonia, and then, down, and then he's going to come down to Corinth. But, but he sends the letter while he's there in Macedonia. And so they're mad because Paul said he was going to come visit. Now he's not. Paul's a liar. He's fickle. He changes his mind all the time. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Was I vacillating? Was I fickle? What, was I changing my mind constantly when I made those plans? No. Because I don't base my plans on my desires, my wants, my urges, my my whims that I have. I base them on the Spirit of God. Here's what he says. He says, for the Son of God, uh, he says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, uh, Silvanus and Timothy, the Silas, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Okay, here's what he's saying. I don't make my plans on my own whims. I follow the leading of the Spirit. He talked about that earlier, right? I I, I make my plans differently than most people do. When, when When you think about Paul in Galatia, when we think back to the book of Acts, he was in Galatia and he wanted to come over to Asia, 
And then the Spirit of God said, no, 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 I'm going to prevent you from doing that. That's not where I want you to go. And so Paul's like, well, I'm going to go to Bithynia, obviously. And, and, and as he's heading up into Bithynia, the Spirit of God says, no, no, not here. And then he heads all the way over to Troas, right? Sometimes we make plans by the best wisdom that we have, and then the Spirit of God leads us in a different way. This happens. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me. That's what I desire in my human will, but not what I will, but what you will. And the Father had different plans, right? And so Jesus submitted his human will to the Father to go to the cross and die for our sins. See, this is what happens is sometimes plans change. And it's not because we, we have this new whim or whatever, but it's because sometimes we don't know what the Spirit of God is up to at the moment and we find out later. So Paul said, here's the deal. I'm following the leading of the Spirit and I'm not saying yes to you, I'll come visit you. And then to my friends over here, I'm saying, no, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not. I'll just make them think this so that they'll like me. That's not that's what he's doing. He's saying, my, my word is not yes and no. It's only yes. And then, and then he jumps to the gospel. And this is, when I first read this, I thought this was the most beautiful, crazy leap to the gospel. Okay, Paul is talking about lying and not lying. He's saying, I, I don't say yes and then no. And then he says, because in, in, in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that was a stretch, Paul. Come on, for real. Right? I, mean, I know you want to tell us about the gospel, but that is a stretch. You need a little transitional statement in there to kind of get us there, but you didn't. And, and at first I thought this is a stretch, but then I realized it's not a stretch for Paul because that's how Paul thought. Right? Paul looked through the lens of the gospel. He was always on the foundation of Christ. He was being led by the Spirit of God. So any and every opportunity where the gospel could even come up, that's what for, that's forefront in his mind. Right? Paul is about the gospel. And so here in Paul, he, he sees this transition from, from the yes and no of, of what I do and how I follow to the fact that Jesus Christ fulfills all the promises of God. And basically what he's saying is what we really want, what we really need, what we've been created to desire is what is found in Christ. They're all fulfilled in Christ. It's always a yes. God is not a, a no guy. God, God is not a fun hater. God's not always saying no, 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 no. In fact, God is saying yes, yes, yes to the things that you truly want, the things that you truly desire. So when you're following the leading of the Spirit, it's always yes. It's always yes to what is best. And that rhymes, and I'm so sorry. But, but it's true, okay? It doesn't make it any less true, but it is. He says, and, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul is saying, here, the reason I'm going to stick through this to the end with you is because we are united in Christ. Whether we like it or not, we who are believers, we who are disciples of Jesus, we are united in Christ. We are of one body together. The bride of Christ, singular. We're together in this because God has united us in Christ and we know this because he sealed, sealed us with his spirit. Right? We all have been sealed with the same Holy Spirit, which shows us that we are indeed united in Christ, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's frustrating, even when we want out. We are united in Christ. 
So this is why we're continuing on. Paul says, but, but I call God to witness against me. Wait, before we go there, I, I, was, just, I was just thinking about, about John chapter 17. When, when Jesus prayed, his high priestly prayer, he prayed, God, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. And this is what God has done. This is what God is doing. Even though sometimes it feels fragmented, even though sometimes it feels like we're divided over every little thing under the sun, we in Christ are united. Verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was actually, and I just put that word in, but, but, but it works here. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Okay, Paul's like, okay, let, let me just put all my cards on the table. You want to know why I didn't come first? You want to know why I decided not to? Why the Spirit of God was leading me not to come to you first? Here's why. He said, it was to spare you. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Right? I'm, I'm all about your joy. I'm about your good. I'm about you standing firm in the faith. Right? I'm not lording over. I'm not dictating your faith. That's not the way that I, I do things. That's not, not what I'm about. It was for your good that I did not come. And here's why. Chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He made a painful visit early on because things weren't going well. He spent you know, a few days, a couple weeks there, and it wasn't a pleasant visit. It was a hard visit. It was a difficult visit. It was a sad visit. And Paul said, I'm not going to do that again. That's not what's best for our relationship. That's not what's most helpful at this point. So I'm going to write a letter. He said, for, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've had pained? And, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and, and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Paul said, the reason I didn't come the first time, the reason I went the other way was for your good, was for your joy, joy, so I wouldn't cause you pain. So, because the most helpful thing for me to do in that moment instead was to write a letter rather than coming to you. So it might prepare the way so that our relationship might be more effective. I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law the other day. And I was getting ready to go do some premarital counseling. I said, what, what's your, what, what advice would you give uh, to, to a couple that's getting ready to get married? And he says, go to bed angry. And I was like, what? He said, go to bed angry. I was like, well, well, what are you talking about? You're not supposed to go to bed angry. Don't let the sun set on your What are you talking about? And basically, really what he was saying is, here's the deal. Sometimes you have little bitty conflicts and sometimes you get really emotional about things and it's important to let those things settle. Yeah, I don't think you should go to sleep on your anger, but it's not always the best idea to conflict in the moment. Maybe you need to take some time and approach God, right? Maybe you need to allow God to fill the voids that you're trying to get the other person to fill. Maybe you need to allow God to remind you of the fact that, that you're the worst, before you enter into conflict. And here's the thing, Paul in that moment said the most helpful thing for me to do was not to visit. It was to write a letter. 
Because that would be better than the painful visit that I had to make before so that my next visit will not be painful. Now, some scholars believe that Paul wrote the letter, to, uh, the letter of Romans while he was in Corinth this next time, which means that things went over well, that the, the letter being led by the Spirit of God not to go was the best way to enhance the relationship. Paul's got this big ball of yarn. I mean, it's crazy. There's so many knots and so many little deals. And it's so tedious, like untying each of these things. And, and I wonder, Renaud said at last, 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 uh, last gathering, he said, why is this in the Bible? I mean, this is so personal. It's all these little bitty things that happen with Paul and the Corinthians. Why is it in the Bible? I mean, it's, it, it's a great story, but this is the word of God. What, is it, what does this matter? What does it matter? Why did God see fit in his sovereignty, in, in, his, in his ultimate wisdom to put this in the Bible? I'm so thankful that he did. Because God uses our stories to tell his story. And there is, a, there is an interaction that Paul is having with these people that I have all the time in my friendships, in, in, in my marriage, in, in my relationship with the Disney campus. And it's so comforting to see and, and, and a little bit kind of disturbing to see the extent that Paul's, Paul goes to show them the grace of God. The extent that he goes walking on eggshells to make sure that this relationship would be restored. The, the extent that he goes to untie all the knots in this gigantic ball of yarn so that the yarn might be useful. If any of you are hipsters and you knit, you know, you can't do much with, with, a, with a ratty ball of yarn with, when it's in a bunch of knots. But if you have a, a, a big giant section of yarn that, that's untangled, you can make amazing things. And this is what Paul is doing. This is what Paul is doing. Paul is saying it's worth it to do the extra work, the tedious work, the annoying, frustrating, difficult work of entering into conflict, even when I don't like it, even when I don't want to, because of what God can do through it. And really, ultimately, Paul is looking through a completely different lens than I look through so often, than most of us look through so often. Paul's looking at God and God's heart and God's character and the way that God thinks and the way that God does stuff. And you look at God's story throughout the Old Testament, how God is always pursuing after humanity and humanity is continually rebelling after him. Even his people are rebelling after him. Uh, the, the best analogy that God gives us is through Hosea, who he says, go marry a prostitute who, who, who was gonna cheat on you and then I want you to go get her again. Because this is the way that my love is for my people. They continue to cheat on me and yet I come after them. And that God went to the ultimate distance to send his son Jesus to live a life on this earth experiencing the same things we experience, the temptations, the difficulty, the tragedies. And then to take our sin upon himself, die on a cross so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. There is no link that God didn't go for us. And I think about this in my own life. Normally, what I think is you're the problem. You're the worst. Other people are the worst. Other people are frustrating. But you know what the common denominator is in all of the fights that I've ever had with anyone? Me. I'm the worst. I'm annoying. I'm frustrating. I am difficult. I fail. I fall. I sin. 
with God, sometimes my faith fails. Sometimes I lose heart. Sometimes I actively choose not to follow after him. And what he says to me is not for a moment will I forsake you. I am faithful today, yesterday, and, and forevermore. My faithfulness never ends. God, he says in, uh, in, in Romans, or, or maybe it's Philippians or Timothy, I don't know. But he says, he says, God will remain faithful even if we are faithless because God cannot deny himself. It's 2 Timothy. He remains faithful when we are faithless because God can't deny himself because God is faithful. That's who he is. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when you're frustrated and annoying and you rebel against him, even when you defame his name because you're sinning actively, he will not forsake you. He loves you so deeply. He's been pursuing after you and he will continue to pursue after you. And what we get to do in light of that, he's had that same heart and demonstrate something that is so countercultural that no one could say that was you. The only thing they could say is it must be something bigger than them. The, the spirit of the God of the universe must be in their midst because they are willing to go distances and links that no one would go. They're willing to get into hard things, the frustrating things. They're willing to deal with people that are annoying, people that are frustrating, people that hate them, people that, 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 that spew out all kind of gossip against them for the glory of God because they realize we are all on the foundation of Christ. We are looking through the lens of the gospel. We are being led by the Spirit. And what the Spirit leads us to do is to unify because Jesus prayed, be one as God and the Son, the Father and the Son are one. It's absolutely worth it that we would take care of the bride of Christ, that we would unify the bride of Christ, that we would die to our wants, our needs, our urges, and our rights for the good of other people. Because in that, we get to represent God, the heart of God, whose love went beyond anything that we could measure or imagine. God has said, hey, I want you to do this for other people. If you do the cost-benefit analysis, You've got to know it's worth it. And you've got to start with the fact that you're the one that's the worst. Look in the mirror. You're the worst. I'm the worst. I've offended a holy God far more than anyone could ever offend me. And the grace that he's given out is far more than any grace amount I could ever give out. You can never outgrace God. I'm in awe of the God that we serve and the extravagant love that he has for us, the extravagant love that he has for me, that he's demonstrated for me through Jesus on the cross, the way that he continues with me, that he is faithful in spite of my lack of faithfulness. And I, I, I'm even more amazed that he said, Brady, I want you to represent that same love, that same faithfulness, that same heart of restoration for, for my church. And he says the same to each and every single one of you. Heavenly Father, God, wow. Well, I, I mean, th there are no words. There are no words, Father, for the, for the extravagant extent that you went so that we might have life, so that we might have intimacy with you. God, thank you that your heart is always for our restoration. God, thank you for empowering us with your spirit so that we might be brought together as one, as one body, as one bride for your glory. And thank you that in that, we can represent you in a way 
that it is so countercultural that people will have no other explanation but the fact that you are mightily in our midst. God, I pray that we be known by our love for one another. Lord, I pray that we be known by our unity together. Lord, I pray that we'd be known for the way that we die to ourselves and are willing to enter into difficult spaces so that we can maintain relationship and represent you well. We need you for that. It's beyond our, our ability. So help us, God. We cry out in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.